In this episode, I'm once again joined by Dr. Ben Joffe, anthropologist and scholar practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism. This episode is the third part of a series in which we explore Ben's PhD dissertation about the Nagpa of the Himalayas, or as Ben calls them, wizards and socially engaged yogis. In this episode, we explore the realms of gender and sexual orientation in both textual and social contexts. Ben discusses the complex situation of female spiritual practitioners in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, looking at terms such as Kandrama, Dakini, and more. We learn about the role of a Sangyum, or sexual consort, and find out why Ben's teacher and co-author, Dr. Nida Chenakzan, dedicated their book on sexual yoga to abuse victims, particularly those who have been abused in religious contexts. And finally, we discuss the heteronormative perspective of traditional tantric texts, and hear Ben's thoughts on how to practice these yogas in other orientations. So without further ado, Dr. Ben Joffe. Dr. Ben Joffe, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me again. Continuing on from our previous conversation, and for those of you who may be tuning into this for the first time, this is a part of a series of conversations that Dr. Ben Joffe and I are having about his PhD dissertation. In the first episode, we met the scholar and we looked at Ben's life and his various influences and his trajectory into the field of anthropology and specifically in the area that he worked. Um, and we also looked at his methodology in terms of his research. In the second episode, we defined the Nagpa. What are they? We looked at their magical powers, uh, how they accumulate those, and told very interesting stories about sorcerous battles and so on. So it was terrific. And this time we're going to keep going, our steady march through the dissertation. Chapter three, for those of you who are following along at home. You know, I want to kick off with some questions about gender. And you make some very interesting observations here. You discussed that Nagma, or female Nagpa, uh, is a term that one would not usually hear. But instead, terms such as Kandroma, Jetsuma, Jomo, and so on are more frequently used. I'd like to ask you about those those terms, particularly, say, Kandroma. You write here, Kandroma, skygoer, she who moves through space, is a complex, multivalent term, difficult to translate neatly into English. And I think listeners may be aware that it's a term often heard in the US and Europe in all kinds of contexts, including the New Age, Neotantra circles. Can you give a sense of why Nagma is not often used in Tibetan culture? And what is implied by those various other designations of honor given to female practitioners? Sure. Um, well, let's see. Uh, I guess to respond to that, I would maybe call back. Uh, I hope viewers who, who aren't familiar with the previous interviews will forgive me for this, but I'll call back to our discussion about the term Ngakpa uh, previously, where I kind of laid out how you can look at Ngakpa on, on two different levels, a kind of more inclusive general level, where it, it sort of indicates someone who is a practitioner of highest yoga tantra, of secret mantra. If you look at the word itself, as we said before, Ngakpa, it's, it's a mantra. It's, it's, a, it's, it's someone who uses mantras or someone who uses tantra, someone who's been initiated into um, uh, advanced tantric yogi practices, right? Um, then I laid out how uh, kind of in a more Tibetan historical cultural context, Ngakpa has a much more specific set of connotations. So it refers more particularly to a certain kind of religious ritual specialist, um, a kind of vocation, which as I mentioned is often hereditary, 
and all, historically always patrilineal, patrilineal in its transmission. So, uh, you know, younger men inherited from older men as a kind of a career or a kind of social status. Um, and that's usually father to son or uncle to nephew, you know, there, there are variations. So on, on that level, the word Ngapa sort of for, for native Tibetan invokes an incredibly masculine image. Um, uh, it's, it's essentially a man's job, um, uh, traditionally, historically. The village Ngapa, the word isn't uh, uh, incredibly masculinized in terms of, of the linguistics of it. But uh, in Tibetan, it's kind of a, a nominalizer. It's like saying ER as a, as a suffix in English, you know, so ma is mantra or tantra, and then the pa is kind of uh, the, the, the tantric, tantriker. Um, so it isn't inherently uh, explicitly masculine, but I think it would be fair to say that if you say the word ngapa, to, if you could do a kind of cognitive science study, get some native Tibetan speakers or, or Himalayan people in a room and sort of get the measure their immediate reactions or uh, their internal responses to that word, I reckon that the stock image that would rise up when that word is uttered would be of a male practitioner. And I talk in the dissertation of how some Tibetans I, I chatted with, when they were talking about female tantric specialists, they kind of sometimes struggled themselves to find words to, to use. So uh, I talk in the dissertation about one moment where I was talking to an, uh, an old language teacher of mine and she was telling me about a, uh, a lifelong nun, a celibate nun, who was also a yogini. So she was a nun, uh, she, she maintained vows of celibacy, but she also had spent decades uh, in closed retreat. And to mark that fact, she had grown long dreaded hair. Um, so she looked like uh, a yogini. She looked like she had the same sort of external attributes of, of a ngapa, but she, it never occurred to her to describe her as a ngapma because of several reasons. One, um, ngapa, like I said, at that sort of ethnographic cultural level, usually means a village-based specialist who has a household and a kind of, um, and holdings, you know, they've inherited ritual tools from their male uh, relatives, they've inherited ritual status, status, they have a function in the village as a householder practitioner. This nun retreatant was not, um, was not that. She, she, from the moment she became a nun, she, she was not a householder. She didn't have a, a regular kind of lay family and, or the responsibilities of family life. Um, the, uh, and, and so it made more sense to refer to her as Anila, as a, as a nun. But she wasn't like all other nuns because indeed she had these long dreadlocks and she had spent lots of time in retreat cultivating tantric power. So actually in the course of this conversation, my friend referred to her as Ani Nappa, <laughs> which is kind of just sounds strange, a little bit strange, because like I said, unqualified when you say Ngakpa to Tibetans, it often suggests a quintessentially male, and not only male, but a certain kind of masculinity, right? A certain expression, cultural expression of masculinity as part of this 
recognized religious role. Um, and today you will hear both Tibetan teachers and Western teachers and practitioners refer to Ngakma. I would say that I think that Ngakma and Ngakmo as feminizations of Ngakpa are much more commonly found, like, like you mentioned in the quote, among uh, non-heritage Buddhist practitioners, amongst non-Tibetans. My teacher, Dr. Nida Chenatsang, a Ngakpa from Tibet, he uses the term Ngakma. Um, and, you know, the, the term is intelligible, particularly to him, because the community of tantric specialists that he comes from in Tibet has sort of, to a certain extent, blazed a trail in creating new spaces for female practitioners. Um, so, th so then I'll backtrack, you know. Uh, on the one hand, you could say that, um, well, let me say this. Uh, there's absolutely no ambiguity about the fact that female tantric practitioners have always been an essential uh, front and you know, really important part of the Tibetan religious landscape. Right from the advent of uh, Buddhism in Tibet, we see Padmasambhava coming as the quintessential Ngakpa, as I mentioned before, into Tibet, performing the, the sort of activities of, of, a, of, a, of a great Ngakpa. But how he does that is through his interactions with, with key female partners and collaborators. So many people are familiar with Yeshe Tsogyal, um, uh, the, the royal woman who became his consort, the sort of old-fashioned term that's often used, his spiritual sexual yoga partner, and who actually becomes the first Tibetan in at least legendary history, first ethnic Tibetan to achieve uh, enlightenment in one human lifetime, in one human body, through the practice of tantric yoga, through her partnership with her, her, her sexual yoga partner and uh, personal guru, Padmasambhava. He is effectively unable to accomplish any of the important tasks he has to do as a tantric uh, miracle worker in Tibet without her involvement. Yeshit Sogyal is understood to be the one who helped him uh, write down the Terima teachings and then conceal them. Uh, they're entrusted to her in the same way that they're entrusted to Dakinis more generally or Kandrama more generally. So if you're just walking through a Tibetan village um, uh, and you meet a, a Ngakpa, a hereditary common garden variety village Ngakpa, and then you meet his wife, it, it's quite common for her to be referred to by a kind of uh, uh, honorific title of Kandra or Kandrama. Uh, she might also be called Sangyum, secret mother, which is uh, the term uh, used to designate her specifically as a, as a sexual yoga consort. Um, so there are always Dakinis and always or Kandrama. Kandrama is the Tibetan, I should make that clear, the Tibetan translation of Dakini. Um, and uh, there are always Yoginis in this kind of religious landscape. But the idea that a woman could sort of occupy that cultural, social, everyday role as the hereditary village specialist, that's more of a new idea. Like I mentioned, in northeastern Tibet, in Rebgong, where Dr. Nida is from, you know, since the 80s, there's been a really exponential growth 
in the in the wives of Nakba from the community, asking to receive teachings, increasing their Tibetan literacy so that they can uh, perform collective rituals alongside their husbands, um, so that they can you know publicly wearing clothing or keeping their hair in a certain fashion and sort of becoming involved in practices more uh, with a bit more agency and also with a bit more in a, in a more formal way uh, in, in a way that sort of mirrors more what their husbands and male relatives may have been doing um, so I would say that part of the reason why Nakuma doesn't make sense to a lot of Tibetans or historically hasn't done so is because of this question of religious function and religious status. Now, aside from that, like I said, there have always been female yoginis like that, um, uh, that nun um, that I mentioned as an example. So yeah, I think what this comes down to, to a large extent, is sort of uh, cultural precedence around the types of roles that men and women have been able to occupy. Um, there have always been uh, in Tibetan and Himalayan societies the possibilities for women to devote their lives to uh, professionally to religious practice, either as nuns or as yoginis. Um, and as yoginis, they may be uh, partners to Ngakpa, uh, to non-celibate, non-monastic specialists, or they might be yoginis alone. They might especially issue um, the attentions or or, or, or desires of men. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of this has to do, uh, part of the reason why we don't see Nakma kind of occupying an equivalent uh, space or status historically in Tibet is because more broadly in terms of gender roles, men and women haven't occupied the same spaces or haven't had access to opportunities in the same way when it comes to religious training or just around expectations of what they they could or should be doing. So, um, you, you know, on one hand, male tantric yogis have depended on female practitioners. I mean, this is a word you often hear, temba, you know, depend on, rely on. Uh, as part of spiritual practice, uh, female practitioners, in a way that, uh, you know, can sometimes feel a little unequal or exploitative. Uh, so, in terms of sexual yoga practice, male uh, practitioners may depend on female partners in those heterosexual uh, uh, spiritual practices involving uh, actual penetrative heterosexual sex. But in a broader sense, male practitioners have also depended on women in other maybe more sort of prosaic, less, you know, exciting ways. Uh, as the mother of Nakba's children, uh, their wives and partners, um, you know, take on responsibilities as uh, cultural gender norms dictate of taking care of children, of performing domestic labor, which in a way you could say enables the possibility for Nakba uh, to engage in extensive retreat. Um, it creates the supportive sort of cultural socioeconomic space in which male practitioners can kind of uh, uh, actualize their activities. Um, so uh, very simply, uh, I would say Ngakma has been gaining in currency as a term, Ngakma. But it's been my experience that many Tibetans, 
don't really even understand what you mean when you say Ngakma as female Ngakma because they've never met a female Ngakma. They immediately understand what you mean when you say Kandroma or uh, Nenjoma, uh, uh, Yogini or Dakini. Um, these are honorific titles, like I said, that are given to the, the, the um, spouses or sexual yoga partners of um, yogis. Um, but there are also terms that could be given to really any woman uh, in, who exhibits exceptional spiritual capacities or who is engaging in tantric yoga. So there are khandras or khandramas who um, are nuns and, and, and are not simply sex partners to, to male yogis. Um, so, so the term khandrama and dakini has a kind of very broad um, semantic field. Um, as you mentioned, it's sort of migrated into neo-tantric New Age contexts where, um, at least from my experiences in the, in the South African neo-tantric community, which is surprisingly active, um, you know, Dhaka and Dakini, which are, are terms from Vajrayana, um, which refer to, but, and this is, this is where things get interesting because we're talking about tantric uh, uh, traditions here where uh, things have operate on different levels, sometimes simultaneously. So in the kind of Tibetan cosmology, Khandroma is a pretty general term. Uh, uh, you know, it's often translated as sky goer or, or sky dancer. Um, literally, Ka means sky or space. Ndro means to move through, and Ma is a feminization. So it's any female potency or, or, or being which which moves through space and so now the level at which you understand that term you know there, there, there are several um, so there are worldly spirits in tibetan cosmologies well unenlightened spirits sort of uh ordinary demonesses <laughs> that are called kandramash sometimes they're called uh uh, uh one of the terms used is uh, shasa so like meat-eating kandrama, flesh-eating kandrama often is this appellation that's used to refer to kandrama who are kind of more like unruly female uh, aerial spirits that tantric practitioners uh, can engage with, but that can also cause problems. You know, they can cause, uh, uh, they can afflict human beings and, and they need to be exercised. Then there are uh, yeshi kandrama. There are enlightened primordial wisdom khandras who are uh, um, essentially expressions of, of Buddha activity, of enlightened activity. And those expressions of enlightened activity can sort of appear in the, as, as goddesses and visions um, with which male and female uh, yogis and yoginis might be engaging as part of their religious the, uh, the, the great uh, female Buddhas like uh, uh, Vajra Yogini, Vajra Varahi are Dakinis, are Yoginis, as Yidams. And then there are also human embodied Dakinis. So, like I said, Dakini or Khandra then becomes a term in, in Tibetan Himalayan societies to describe a kind of female religious specialist who 
who may do a range of things. They may be recognized for having very powerful natural powers of clairvoyance. They may um, uh, 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 perform healings or divinations. Uh, they may have be become sort of uh, mediums for goddesses, uh, in, uh, you know, worldly uh, uh, pr protector deities or something like that, who th themselves are a kind of chandra. And so there's a sort of conflation of levels, you know, and, and in the context of sexual yoga practice, um, uh, both the yogi and yogini are not conceiving of themselves as ordinary uh, samsaric human beings with ordinary samsaric human bodies. When they engage in those meditative practices that incorporate sexuality, it, sort of a required part of those practices is to uh, conceive of yourself and your partner as being a Buddha, um, a, a Dhaka or Dakini. And, and so these, these labels are operating on many levels. Um, uh, and then also in terms of uh, uh, kind of standard root vows of Vajrayana, uh, we are told that uh, initiates of Vajrayana should never impugn women, even in jest. The one, uh, they should never speak ill of women or think ill of them or behave abusively to them because all women, whether they're practicing Buddhism or not, are in, in their essential nature, dakinis. Um, so, so there's many levels on which this is working. But in, in, in a sort of ethnographic sense, in terms of what do these, in a way that an anthropologist might be interested in, you know, how are people using these, these, these labels in an everyday way? Um, I would, yeah, I would say that Ngapa is, is not uh, commonly found. I mean, I've searched through online databases of, of, of text to see if it comes up, and it, it essentially never comes up before the last 20 years. Um, but because the role that Ngapa are playing within their societies is such a fundamentally, normatively masculine one. However, um, any ngatma they might be would also sort of fall into the broader, more nebulous category of dakini or kandrama. Um, so I think there are, can, there, are, there are overlaps with the way that um, uh, the term dakini and dakka are being used by some neo-tantric practitioners and then how they're used in a more traditional Vajrayana sense. Uh, but one thing I've noticed in that, in that sort of context, in the, in the New Age Neo-Tantra context, is that often people will begin calling themselves a Dhaka or Dakini once they've sort of committed to neo certain Neo-Tantric practices, or even in a more formal way, once they've sort of... Uh, once they've done enough... Uh, um, uh, once they're affiliated with certain teachers or, or, they've, or they've completed certain training courses, it, it, you know, it differs. Maybe someone will just uh, append that to, to, to themselves when, because they're, they're using it as a way to kind of like remind themselves of their innate divinity. Um, I think a lot of different things, there's a lot of different stuff going on. Um, in the Tibetan context, women will often be recognized as being dakinis in some or other fashion by religious authorities. And because men dominate in the religious world, that's often by the men. So 
in the same way that a tuku, a reincarnate lama, will be recognized um, as a result of certain signs or capacities that they exhibit in childhood or, or later on in life, uh, there are occasions where lamas will say, you know, um, this, this woman is a dakini of such and such a type. Um, and so the way that Vajrayana categorizes kinds of dakinis is some dakinis are kind of are born. Um, some dakinis are dakinis by virtue of dedicated tantric yogic practice. Um, so uh, I will say, though, that because this is usually a kind of point of contention and confusion, I personally have not really come across any Tibetan text on, on heterosexual sexual yoga practice which hasn't made it pretty explicit that the ideal partner for practice, you know, these texts are written from very male-centric um, uh, perspective, uh, sort of catering for, from the point of view of men's bodies, men's interests, priorities, uh, issues, and so on. But I haven't come across a single text that I've looked at here, which is sort of not stressed that the ideal partner for, for a yogi for these sorts of practices should be a yogini who is also initiated into uh, Tantra, also understands and respects the teachings, has also ideally done the same, if not higher levels of practices as the male practitioner. So you can see I'm, I'm going around all over the place now, but there's, there's different ways in which these terms get used. And there's often a sort of an overlapping or sort of conflation between, I guess, non-human levels of significance of this term and then and then the human practitioners who bear these terms. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Mm, yeah, it's very interesting. Have you thought much about the purpose of that vow, uh, never to disparage women even in jest? Pure vision is a sort of par a part of the uh, the deal with high yoga tantra, um, tantric practice in general. It would seem, therefore, redundant to make an additional exhortation uh, in that direction, unless it was perhaps counteracting a, a prevalent cultural trend to the contrary, or um, or perhaps there's some other some other uh, purpose for that. Could, what would you say is the purpose there? Yeah, one explanation that I have heard is, is indeed what you just said, um, that, you know, some, some scholars have said, does this really indicate a kind of uh, tantric feminism? Or does it indicate instead the, just the reality that misogyny and the, the sort of inferior status of women was so ordinary in the rest, in other contexts, that it had to be stressed here? And that maybe some people have even gone so far as to say maybe that positioning of woman in the context of, of tantric peer view is itself a kind of transgressive. It's, it's, it's yet another expression of tantric transgression given kind of mainstream uh, Indian uh, uh, conventions around gender. Um, I mean, I think there's something to that for sure. We need to look at these things in, 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 in their particular historical political context too. Um, I know Dr. Nida has said too that um, he believes that um, this overemphasis um, in the textual corpus and in the tradition on men's bodies and men's practice, and uh, which, you know, you could be forgiven for thinking that, and, and some scholars have said this, that sexual yoga practices in Vajrayana are 
really nothing more than uh, a kind of spiritual justification for men getting to have sex with women, or more charitably, for men to actualize their spiritual needs. And women's spiritual paths or needs are, are effectively irrelevant. They're simply tools to be exploited by, by men in a patriarchal society. And again, there's, a, there's something to that. But Nida says, um, uh, for example, he says, you know, I think all these texts were written uh, by men about how to cultivate sexuality because they tend to be worse at it. <laughs> they tend to have less of a, um, uh, a kind of, uh, they're coming from an, uh, a gendered, gendered norms that make it harder for them to, to engage in these practices. They need more help. Um, and, and they need to kind of rework their, their conditioning a lot more. Um, so there's that, there's that uh, point to be made too. I, I can't answer your question. I don't know the exact history of how these things emerge. Better scholars than me have written about um, the development of goddess cults, the development of the cult of the Dakinis. Uh, in the Shaiva context, scholars like David Gordon White, Shaman Hatley, you know, this kind of cult of the Dakini yogini emerges out of ascetic charnel ground practices in India, kind of pre-tantric into tantric practices where uh, uh, people are going into these wild, contaminating, uh, haunted environments like the charnel ground and willingly calling up these kind of flesh-eating dakinis I mentioned, offering their body fluids. This is men, typically men, but um, in, in, this, in the way that we get it, as a textual tradition, once again, um, it's men offering their sort of vital fluids and flesh to, to willingly be consumed by uh, flying female demonesses. Who then, in exchange, grant Siddhi. This then sort of is a kind of apotheosis where uh, practitioners become Bhairava um, and they're sort of taken up by um, hordes of Dakinis and, and, and sort of deified, but unite with. Um, uh, a shiva uh, with God, um, and you know, it's, it, this is complicated terrain. It takes, it develops in many different directions, and we see the the imprint of it in various forms. A lot of these practices look quite similar to the chit practice in, in, in the Tibetan context too, um, and and so yeah, uh, we know that those kinds of spirits became associated with certain kinds of women who were part of these communities in various sorts of ways and then this evolves into kind of more codified sexual yoga practice as well um, and we have this movement from from sort of indian practices involving uh, uh, engagement with impure substances and consumption of impure substances sexual fluids and uh, uh, contaminating uh, sort of the sex and death imagery that's so familiar from the highest yoga tantras and then we see as time goes on in Tibet, sexual yoga meditation, sexual meditations become much more about working with the subtle body and the experience of sexual bliss as a basis um, for meditation, as, a, as, as just one other thing on which one, can, which one can use and on which one can meditate in order to experience the clear life nature of mind. So... So already we see a kind of shift. 
there's there's these different layers of practice you know in, in tibet we never see we never see those kinds of relationships with like celestials slightly scary but also you know uh, blessing granting ferocious female divinities that never goes away even as the technologies of sexual yoga transform or the kind of the emphasis of you know why are you offering sexual fluids um or what the offering means or or how that fits into non-dual tantric philosophies you know there's many different levels at which sex stuff <laughs> is um, is going on in indo-tibetan uh tantric traditions and and in tibet we see all of these levels kind of happening at once as part of different practices different levels of different practices um so i think it can be, it's a bit of a bewildering terrain um but yeah i don't know the exact answer to your question about how that emerges but i will say as my as my closing thought on this that many scholars of religion have pointed out that just because you have a goddess oriented religion just because you have uh representations of female power uh just because you have a, a spiritual tradition which actually prioritizes the feminine over and above the masculine or um or uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's that translates into the kind of facts of social uh of social arrangements right um you goddess uh traditions can flourish in thoroughly everyday patriarchal environments right um and so this has been a question that sort of exercised and um been been of great interest to to scholars and practitioners for a long time you know that that point of translation or lack thereof you know how is it that we can have a tradition that's so goddess centric and yet still see so much marginalization of actual female bodied practitioners or queer practitioners non heteronormative um normatively masculine practitioners and so on so i think even well beyond tantric traditions just sort of across the world's religions this is a really interesting question uh uh and there's there's a lot that could be said on that too yeah but i'll leave it yeah i'd actually like to ask you a bit about that a bit later about how sexual expressions outside of the heteronormative one are treated and addressed but before we go there you've been talking quite a bit about this idea of sangyum consorts and you write here uh, tibetan tantric buddhist sexual yoga practices have often been generalized or caricatured by non-tibetan commentators as inherently and inevitably oriented towards male bodies needs and priorities as being fundamentally about exploiting sangyum as nothing but disposable tools for men's spiritual advancement Blanket characterizations of tantric sexual yoga as inherently disempowering for women have been roundly challenged by recent scholarship and you give several references still it remains nonetheless true that female practitioners have indeed been exploited and abused by male practitioners under the guise of tantric sex and that tibetan women have found it difficult to operate as religious authorities without some sort of relationship or ratification by powerful men and you say that the status and uses of non-celibate sexuality in tibetan tantric buddhist contexts continues to be contentious and i think you've made several of those points can you give a sense specifically in the area of um sangyum and and uh, tantric sex partner can you give a sense of the range of religious and cultural factors that play here well i have a couple of things i can say around that um 
you know, I think when we're looking at Indian precedents and Indian texts, um, we're really dealing with a kind of a different sort of social cultural environment. That's that's an important thing to remember. Um, you know, you may have had uh, groups of initiates meeting under cover of darkness um, to to be part of a of a religious community that was transgressive just because it contained people from many castes um, who outside of the initiatic secret context weren't even supposed to be talking to one another, let alone having sex with one another. Um, so potentially. So um, I think that when you're looking at some of the Indian material, female consorts for male practitioners are kind of, you know, so they're sometimes uh, referred to by in, in, in uh, authoritative text by terms that sort of indicate their low status like uh, washerwoman or, or, you know, things like that. Um, and it's part of this kind of transgressive, uh, non-dual environment in which these practices are, are occurring. But then, of course, when these things come to Tibet, when, uh, you know, uh, Yogini Tantras or highest Yoga Tantras come to Tibet uh, and, and they're referencing uh, the incorporation of sexuality on the spiritual path, they're coming to a, a place where the cultural, social uh, norms are different. You know, Tibetan uh, Tibetan forms of marriage, just outside of Vajrayana, just ordinary cultural uh, marriage patterns are just so wildly diverse and flexible and different to anything that you could imagine ever seeing in, in Hindu India. So... It, it's always interesting to me how people kind of want to just speak about what the tradition says about gender, what the tradition says about the possibility of enlightenment in a female body and so on. But there's been much less discussion about the fact that, okay, well, Tibet, Tibet incorporated these teachings and, and developed them as a particular society, as particular kinds of people with, with, their, with their own sort of cultural norms and, and expectations. So it's much, as we mentioned before, you know, right from the beginning when, when Buddhism comes into Tibet, you have a community of, uh, of non-celibate, non-monastic bar holders, and then uh, a community of monastic celibate ones. And so the idea of having a kind of, it, it's, it's a bit funny when you use this term, you know, some secret mother, uh, this honorific term, because in practice, the, the sangyum of, uh, uh, of, several great lamas are not necessarily secret. They're publicly recognized as the, as the wife of this practitioner. Um, we often see this pattern that Holly Gailey has spoken about too. Of it's difficult for Sangyum to operate as religious teachers on their own, in their own right, especially when their husbands are still alive. But because, as you mentioned, there is this pattern uh, occasionally where older lamas who may have been living celibate lives or or maybe they weren't already, but it might have health problems or various obstacles. And uh, this, this is where it's a bit hard for, um, for kind of people less familiar with the sort of cosmology involved in, in the technicalities involved in all this to understand. But the practice of sexual yoga is often associated with um, of removing obstacles and subduing sort of demonic influences and forces. So we have instances of great treasure revealers 
being led by prophecy to, to engage in, in karma mudra, in sexual yoga practice with a physical partner, in order to protect Tibet from foreign invasion or to to dispel uh, you know, various other kinds of obstacles. So for some people, it's just sort of, when we see um, Guru Rinpoche, Padmasambhava do this also, he, he's using sexual yoga to attain immortality, but also to subdue uh, adverse forces and to uh, 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 allow for the flourishing of, of Buddha Dharma in Tibet. So this can be a little bit hard for someone not sort of au fait with tantric yogic worldviews to understand how two individuals um, and the goings on in their apparently individual subtle bodies could have some sort of Im impact like that. Um, and yeah, it's definitely true that that there's this pattern. So because uh, older lamas who are already ailing may enter into partnerships with younger women, you know, this this certainly doesn't help the stereotype that certain sexual yoga practices are about men literally vampirizing women's uh, vital vital force. Um, and it is true that karma mudra practices can be used to improve one's health. That's a sort of incidental, uh, temporary benefit beyond the, the ultimate benefit of, of, of uh, enlightenment. Um, Sarah Jacobi, uh, another Tibetan studies scholar, has written in a very interesting way about, about this dynamic, because she actually shows in, you know, she, she explores uh, in, in, in wonderful detail the autobiographical writings of a um, she never calls herself a nakma, incidentally. Um, she calls us, she says she's not a nun and she's not an ordinary woman. Her name's Sarah Kandra, Sarah Kandrama. The, uh, the, uh, she was a great female treasurer of Vila, who I think has come up on your show before. And she mentions how, you know, there were times when male practitioners were kind of seeking her out so that she could teach them sexual yoga practices and so that they could improve, she could help them improve their health thereby. But it's interesting in that she is an older woman. I think she has arthritis, if I remember correctly, in her leg or something. Um, she seeks out a younger male consort who is karmically destined to, who energetically is, is, is appropriate for her to practice with. Uh, she's already experienced in sexual yoga practice. She's been practicing alone and with her guru slash partner. Um, and various other uh, men, and uh, she talks quite matter-of-factly about how she found a, a male partner who she could uh, practice with in order to cure her, her physical ailments. So we might not see parity or equivalence in the written record because of how it's skewed by the, just the structural facts of um, uh, a particular society which are, are not negligible. <laughs> um, you know, I have one instance that I mentioned in the dissertation where the daughter of Amakpa that I met tells me about how her mother had initially been very excited to have the opportunities um, and prestige that would come with being the wife of a great uh, lama. But then, to her dismay, discovers that there's a lot of kind of baggage that comes along with raising children, she, didn't, she thought that closeness to a lama would provide her opportunities for religious practice. She'd been practicing in a very dedicated way as a single woman. And then she got 
embroiled and tied up in all these kinds of familial duties and Lama politics. And, and so I have, um, I mentioned how this uh, acquaintance of mine had said, you know, that her mother actually said, don't become a Kandrava like I did. Um, don't marry a Lama. If you really want to practice, be a nun. Uh, keep yourself somewhat separate from them. But then, of course, nun, nuns have their own uh, obstacles, right? The expectations that they'll that they should remain attached to their family and continue to support their family even after ordaining are very different compared to 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 um, monks in Tibetan Himalaya. So, I guess yeah, this is something Nid and I have spoken about a lot. Like the tradition certainly looks a certain way. It's certainly been dominated by male voices and interests, but it doesn't have to be like that, especially when the social conditions in which people are living now might be quite different. In terms of its technology, there is really no reason why. All sexual yoga practices, broadly speaking, some require partners and are quite heteronormative, but most sexual yoga practices, what they are based on in terms of their their technologies, can be practiced by anyone with a human body and a human mind and who understands the teachings and, and doesn't have you know, obstacles to applying them. Um, they can do so with their own body. You know, uh, this is something that isn't always immediately clear to some people, but tummo yoga, inner heat yoga. Tummo yoga is sexual yoga. It's sexual yoga with your own body. Um, and, and then once you've mastered that, the, the traditional, uh, approach was to then practice with another's body. These are the terms in Tibetan. Tummo is referred to as Ranglu Tapten and then Shenlu Tapten, the method with one's own body and then the method with another's. Uh, sexual yoga with a physical partner is the method with another's. It's like Tummo for two. Um, it's not only that, but yeah. And then one last thing I'll say is uh, What's interesting about the, I was talking about how, you know, Tibetan society is different to Indian society. It has different social structures and cultural norms, which are obviously going to affect how sexual yoga is understood and practiced. One way in which that's true is the term of tradition writ large. Um, Sexual yoga becomes so, it's not just that sexual yoga practices become central to Vajrayana in India as part of initiation initially, um, but it's also that in Tibet, the terma tradition becomes so important and uh, um, uh, powerful as a kind of social cultural force, religious force. And by and large, sexual yoga is, is kind of synonymous with the, the production, with the, with the uh, unveiling of terma. Um, it's, you know, there are a couple of very prominent uh, Tartama who remained celibate, who did not have uh, Karma Mudra partners, but they're, you know, they're in the extreme minority. And often in their life stories, you know, there's elaborate accounts about why it is that they, that they opted not to have um, sexual yoga partners or, or they, um, you know, practice only with some and not others. And so, uh, you know, there's this idea in the, um, in the treasure tradition that every uh, prophesized treasure of Vila has an allotted karmic partner, someone um, who 
who really karmically is meant for them in terms of doing this practice. Energetically, their channels and, uh, align. They, they activate one another. They, they come together as a kind of destined alignment. They're literally acting out a kind of karmic choreography, which incidentally is another reason why one can maybe raise one's eyebrow a little bit at when you hear stories about lamas who seem to just be chewing up and spitting out, you know, casual sex partner after casual sex partner. This is not what we really see in the kind of soaring narratives of reunion across past lives and karmic and energetic alignment that is it's kind of the, the uh, a part of the deal of being a treasure revealer who through partnered um, sexual meditation is able to enter into the extremely uh, rarefied states of consciousness of non-dual non-conceptual awareness of, of you know beyond, uh, beyond time and space that allows them to then extract these treasures that were hidden there by the original couple, by Masambhava and Yishitsokya. Um, and so in that way, treasure reveals are kind of living the mythic history of the original um, uh, tantric couple in Tibet, the original karmically destined uh, partners. Um, and yeah, there, there are there are definitely different models, as you say. Um, sometimes sangyama are quite secret; they aren't publicly known, and then this causes all kinds of problems, especially if the practitioner is a monk um, publicly. Um, and and so yeah, there, there's a lot that could be said about this term, um, uh, and how maybe dakini and sangyum could be used to 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 aggrandize individuals. Certainly ordinary Tibetans I know. Um, sorry, I can say it's term ordinary. No one's ordinary. Um, let's say not lamas. <laughs> um, but, uh, just, you know, Tibetan friends of mine will often say, okay, well, this, this yogini, this Tibetan or non-Tibetan practitioner of tantric yoga, whoever it might be, is using this term dakini or kandra to describe himself. The first thing people are going to say is like, who who authorized that? On whose authority? Um, uh, I talk briefly in the gestation about how one friend of mine too is like very Tibetan friend of mine, very blase about it. He's like, oh yeah, if a lama really wants to, he can get the private office of his holiness Dalai Lama to to recognize his girlfriend as a kandra, you know, and give a stamp of legitimacy. So there's you could say maybe a measure of of jadedness or cynicism around this too within Tibetan communities. Um, uh, but yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, but certainly there's there's many there's many ways in which to look at this term. This term is both a, a blessing and a, or an actualization of one's purpose, and then also potentially as a, as a curse, like my friend's mother said, you know, uh, avoid this label, avoid this status if you really want to practice. So. That's fascinating. And later in your dissertation, you go into um, great detail uh, about the retreats that one would undergo uh, in, the, in the realm of Kama Mudra and so on. It's really fascinating. And I want to sort of wait for the practical technology discussion when we reach that part of the dissertation and perhaps then also draw on your work you've, with uh, Dr. Nita Chanaksang, uh, your Kama Mudra book, which also lays out a great deal of 
of the technology or techniques there we go <laughs> i'll cut that in yeah and uh which is a fabulous book um uh, so we're you know i'd like to two more really areas here just to get your take on so we're looking really here at the social setting of of karma mudra and we'll deal uh later with uh, in a later uh, episode if we get to that point in your dissertation uh, with the technology of it and how it's said to be done and how it's really done and well, it's a very fascinating area one thing that comes to mind as you're as you're riffing on these topics a cultural um, trend or part of the culture i think in america and perhaps europe is this idea of and we and we see it expressed in codes of ethics for doctors, for lawyers, for therapists, this idea of a power differential being um, an immoral, not illegal, but an immoral component of a sexual union. In other words, if a therapist, uh, a therapist is not allowed to have by their, their by their code of ethics, is not allowed to have sex with their client, even if the client wants to, you know, doctor is not supposed to have sex with the, with the patient, even if the patient wants to, and is sort of legally consenting. So I wonder how you see in the translation of Vajrayana in, in the sort of Western context or American European context, given that in the uh, tradition we're discussing, sex across a power differential such as guru disciple is a legitimate, um, has a legitimate uh, place, uh, can be abused, yes, but also has a sort of non-abusive version. And given that in our culture, it seems uh, the trend is towards any sex across a power differential being at the very least suspect, if not verboden, uh, basically. Um, you know, as these, as these two cultural uh, perspectives come together, uh, you know, we, with Vajrayana in America and in Europe and so on, and um, I'm wondering if you'd thought about a way through that. I, I think so. Um, I, I think I have... Uh, you know, I mean, I guess obviously cultural, historical norms and and uh, are, are going to come in here. Like I sort of mentioned earlier, you know, Tibetan sexual uh, conventions differ across the Tibetan plateau. Um, in exile, outside of exile, uh, you know, just this, this is I'm not talking about spiritual traditions or anything like that. Just everyday sexual conventions and ideas about marriage and, and, and romance and relationships. I talk in the dissertation about how family structures and, and uh, patterns of marriage have, have transformed dramatically in the last 50 years of Tibetan, of Tibetan exile. Um, you know, uh, Tibetans are having so, you know, so many fewer kids than they had in the past in exile. They're getting married so much later. They're using contraception at an incredibly high rate. You know, these are all sort of everyday facts about how, you know, we can never think of sexuality in it or, or sexual practice, no matter how lofty or esoteric seeming in a kind of, you know, in a vacuum. A lot of what I was trying to do in the dissertation was to sketch out a kind of broader uh, domain of lay sexual conventions. Um, to then understand how how esoteric knowledge operates, traditional esoteric knowledge operates within uh, that broader context. Um, so yeah, I mean, inherently in Vajrayana, the guru and the disciple are not equal. They can never be equal until the moment of their unification. 
So let me explain that. Like you, the whole point of having a teacher or a mentor or a guide is that they know more and better than you. They can guide you. Otherwise, they would not be your teacher. Um, uh, if you think you know more than the guru, then they shouldn't be your guru and you shouldn't be their student. Um, you, or you should at least ask yourself why, why you are claiming to, to have entered into this you know, teacher-disciple relationship when, when you, you don't want it to be like that. Um, uh, so, I mean, yeah, inherently your guru is supposed to be someone who, who is not equal to you in terms of expertise or experience or, or, or authority, right? And then, of course, when you do guru yoga meditation, the whole point of that meditation is to realize the utter equivalence of, you, of the ultimate nature of your own mind and the ultimate nature of the guru's mind. That's why you have this um, relationship, this unequal relationship, so that it can actualize the kind of uh, 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 meditative experience of, of, of equality. So that, that's a whole other issue about what guru yoga is. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are many accounts uh, of people who, and you know, these sorts of sexual scandals, tantric casualties have been coming up more and more recently. There are many accounts of uh, students who um, have engaged in sexual relationships with their, their gurus, um, which is not historically un, unfounded or unfamiliar, right? Um, who have subsequently said that they felt that that, that relationship was abusive, uh, exploitative, that it, it deeply harmed them, that they were being gaslit and controlled by the teachers for the for the teachers' own gain. Um, so when Dr. Nida and I put together this book, you know, his primary motivation, he says in the acknowledgement, uh, the dedication at the beginning, he says he'd like to dedicate the book to all victims of sexual abuse and especially to those who've been abused in the name of spiritual and religious traditions. May the pain and suffering caused by sexual abuse swiftly cease in every corner of this earth. So where that comes from is that uh, Dr. Nida, as a physician, had been seeing many female patients around the world in Asian contexts and elsewhere who were confessing to him that this had happened and he could see physical and psychological harm that had been done to them as part of these uh, sexual relationships. Um, and as a Nukpa himself, uh, trained in sexual yoga practices, who is married, uh, uh, who has kids and believes that these practices have benefit for any, any number of practitioners, male, female uh, um, practitioners who are LGBTQ+, you know, um, he really wanted to put this book out in large part because he was saying, I've recognized that this has been a part of this field in which this knowledge circulates, in which these relationships happen. And it's not a case of saying there's never going to be an instance where there can't be a necessary or uh, enlightening relationship between guru and disciple that is sexual. I mean, we simply can't say it because, as I mentioned, you know, uh, Yeshitsogyo was the disciple of Guru Rinpoche, and she's the first Tibetan who became um, enlightened through Vajrayana practice, um, through that relationship. So, you, you know, we can't say that, that, that this is not a thing, but 
in, in terms of our book, Nida was trying to say, look, students need to understand um, what these practices involve. Um, they, you're always going to have a kind of innately uh, sort of open to abuse, open to exploitation situation where students are engaged with gurus and with um, tantric practices and tantric uh, uh, sangha where they don't even know um, what sexual yoga really is, what it's been historically, what it involves, as you said, the nuts and bolts and, and the kind of context in which it's flourished and the way it's been explained by the tradition. Like what, what we see a lot of the time is sexual yoga practices are so, you know, historically they've been considered very advanced practices, apex practices, and extraordinarily secret. I mean, one of the, one of the euphemisms for uh, a partnered sexual yoga practice is sangche, the secret conduct. It's, the, it's, the sec it's that secret stuff. Um, so um, I think that creates an environment where people feel like, well, that's about my security clearance. Um, or it's inappropriate for me to just ask questions or say like, what is this really about? Or how does this work? Or because, you know, you're just a, uh, a, a humble student and certainly not at that level. And so then if a situation happens where a teacher comes and says, oh, I, you know, like I've chosen you to assist me in this great spiritual work, et cetera, et cetera, that student is from the get-go disempowered because they didn't have a means to ask about this. They weren't furnished with a kind of broad education around the, the lay of the land with these, these practices. And then they also feel that they can't refuse or speak back to their guru because of that relationship in which they've entered. So I think for Nida at any rate, and, and for us working on our book, our feeling was really like, it would be better if there were if there were opportunities for uh, practitioners to educate themselves before they get involved in these kinds of relationships. And I can't say categorically that one instance of abuse was. Uh, I mean, I have my personal opinions, but I can't categorically pronounce as an all-knowing Buddha that one instance of a sexual relationship between a, a guru and disciple was. So, wholly and solely motivated by uh, self-serving samsaric interests. Um, you know, I think that in, in some cases, it's, you know, my opinion is that in some cases, you hear from, from disciples who've been involved in those relationships that they were being told by the guru that, that what they were doing was sexual yoga. But then when you hear some details about it, it doesn't resemble anything like sexual meditation sadhana. It's sort of the behavior of the teacher, the, the sort of pattern of, of relationships that they have with um, partners doesn't look like what we see in some other instances of, of uh, sexual practice. But, you know, I'm not going to make pronouncements authoritatively. Um, and I, I should just expand on what we were kind of doing in the book. We weren't saying, okay, here's the book that will <laughs> provide a kind of... Uh, um, uh, you know, what are those? What are those travel guide books called? Lonely Planet. Like it's not a Lonely Planet. Read it before, before you jump into a unequal relationship of sexual tutelage under guru. That was 
definitely not what this book was about. This book was about explaining what uh, the kind of historical, cultural context and logic and technologies of these practices have evolved so that individual practitioners could decide for themselves whether they thought that these practices could benefit them on their spiritual path and stressing that um, female practitioners or LGBTQ uh, practitioners don't require the, you know, if you have received transmissions for the teachings, you understand what they involve and you're in a good position to practice them. Uh, you can practice with your own body. You can practice with an imagined partner. You can practice um, uh, with, uh, you know, a co-initiate or a husband or wife. Uh, I, I'm just, I just want to point that out because I'm not, I, I don't want to give listeners the impression that the sort of paradigmatic model of sexual yoga practice is a guru who initiates you with his penis. Um, now, there may have been a period in history, as we touched on briefly before, where the, the, uh, the rites of initiation into highest yoga tantra did involve some of those elements. Um, and it could also be a female guru initiating a male uh, student as well. Um, but, you know, this is only one domain historically in which these things appear. And as we mentioned before, they're no longer how initiation is transmitted um, in sort of in this, it's no longer the standard fashion in, in which high yoga tantra initiation happens in Tibetan Buddhist context. So in, in terms of your question, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've sort of semi-jokingly said that my, my greatest hope for this book is that someone with a fascination in tantric sex might read it and go, oh, yeah, I don't think that's the practice for me. Um, I don't think that's, that's like, I don't think I need to work with my sexual uh, sexuality in that way. I don't think that's the practice that's, that clicks for me or that will be efficacious for me. Um, now that I understand it, I see that maybe dream yoga or chert or, or guru yoga practices or any other number of the vast array of tantric yogic disciplines might be the one that, that is really a, profoundly transformative practice for me. So um, I think that your question is a huge question though, in terms of how, how much room is there for a total reorganization of the kind of cultural and social power structures that, that have been a part of, of these traditions. It's, it's a similar question to, um, you know, His Holiness the, the Dalai Lama increasing, you know, over the last few years, more and more kind of uh, blindly announcing that he thinks that it's time for a serious rethink and overhaul of the entire Tukru institution, the institution of succession via reincarnation, the, the, the vesting of power and authority in, in um, you know, for the most part, male um, reincarnated lamas in this way. So, yeah, I mean, this is a question that everyone is answering differently right now. To, to what extent do we try to, you know, if Vajrayana emerged out of certain social and political contexts, to what extent, you know, what's essential and what's disposable? And people have very different, you know, modernists and traditionalists, it's very uh, strong and fraught lines that are being drawn right now. Sometimes the 
traditionalists are accused of being modernists, and the modernists are accused of being traditionalists. There's no one simple answer. Um, I think, you know, part of what this book was too was neither acknowledging, you know, things that hadn't been acknowledged traditionally. You know, I've come across no text, no Tibetan text uh, describing sexual yoga, which acknowledges that, you know, transgender practitioners might practice, apart from one or two hints in the Yutuk Nyintik. Um, but Dr. Nida, you know, directly addresses this and explains why it's entirely possible, in his opinion, for transgender and homosexual practitioners, queer practitioners of various kinds, to still use these practices for their intended purposes and to even repurpose some of the, the, the technical features of them to, to their own needs. Now, I guess that's what happens when, when any form of religious change takes place, right? We have practitioners in a particular historical context appealing to authoritative texts, histories and institutions and figures, and then trying to see the extent to which that aligns and what they're willing to, to like the Dalai Lama is willing to say, well, look, is the Tukul tradition Buddhist or is it Tibetan? And so then, depending on our answer, what, what do we make of that? And so, um, absolutely, we're seeing this happen in so many small and big ways in Sanghas all around the world, right? Um, uh, one, you know, one model, as you mentioned, is the Aroter, who emphasize a kind of formalized uh, domestic partnership as the sort of standard model for how their sangha operates and how their teachings uh, are transmitted and practiced. That, that sort of couples, you know, uh, I know that there are queer members, but it, it, it seems like a, a fairly heteronormative model of, you know, married partners or, or monogamous partners. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, this, these challenges are going to affect Sanghas all over the world. They're affecting Tibetan uh, communities as well in, in their own unique ways too, about how to rethink uh, power and authority and its distribution. I, I know that some, some uh, communities I know of have gone so far as to say, can we imagine tantric practice, legitimate tantric practice, without the, um, can we rethink the entire guru idea? Um, that's interesting to me as an anthropologist. I don't really understand that uh, personally because I think, like based on my understanding of how the mechanisms of guru yoga, um, I don't really know how that works personally, but um, that's certainly been, you know, the conversations are going in that direction perhaps we need to rethink the guru entirely. That seems like a total impossibility to a lot of uh, like Tibetan Buddhists. Um, the guru is the kind of the linchpin of the, of the system in a way. I think what we see more often is people sort of saying like, perhaps the way that you're understanding what the relationship of the guru really is about needs to, to change or will be reconsidered. Um, and so sex and sexual interactions are one part of that. But certainly we, we did not write this book with, 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 you know, with the intention of sort of exonerating uh, guru-disciple 
sexual relations, you know, uh, after providing a more thorough education of how that works. It was more about saying, here's how sexual yoga has often existed within Tibetan context. Here are some of the controversies and concerns and misunderstandings about its its purpose, its form, um, uh, why why it's done, um, and here are some suggestions about how people could maybe do it by themselves on a level that's appropriate to their training. Uh, that's a whole other issue that we could get into in a in a more detailed discussion about the the kind of technologies behind this, but uh, and yeah, also just as I said, for, for informative purposes, uh, if someone reads this book, it's certainly not an, necessarily a, a, an encouragement to, to practice natural yoga also, or, or a, a, a kind of suggesting that it needs to be done if they want to uh, practice Buddhism. So, yeah, I mean, these things are definitely still unfolding, you know, these questions. And um, I'm interested as an anthropologist in the different ways that that different communities are responding to this. I, I don't feel capable of giving some personal pronouncement about what I think is the best way to avoid abuses of power. Um, uh, they certainly happen, and they happen regularly enough. So there's a need to have these conversations, and, and um, there are conversations that are being had all over the world. You know, it's like often traditionalist non-Tibetan convert Buddhists will say. This is Western liberalism. <laughs> this is just a kind of alien ideology that's being opposed to a completely different um, uh, system of, of, of thinking and being, of, to tantra, non-dual tantra. And again, there's something to that. Um, are we trying to understand one system? So this is the, 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 the sin of ethnocentrism, right, in anthropology. Never try to understand the, how one system of practice or belief works in terms of another system of practice and values or belief, right? Um, but, you know, Tibetans who are born and raised in this cultural world are also asking questions. They're all, you know, they're also responding to controversy in a variety of ways. And um, I think it would be a little bit shallow to say that the Tibetans who who have critiques or, or issues of, of them, of these practices and their potential for abuse, have just sort of drunk in some kind of Western democratic liberal individualist Kool-Aid. Because it, it's just not true. I mean, I mentioned in the dissertation, uh, I don't know if you saw that part, I, I, I made a point of including a critique, a gentle, jokey critique that Jumipam the great Nyingma non-sectarian master makes of practitioners of Karma Mudra in the Nyingma school, with which he himself was associated. He, this is a 19th century critique um, by somebody who wrote about the practice of Karma Mudra and how important and legitimate it was. Um, you know, he makes this uh, kind of little joke where he says, oh, it's, it's, it's so interesting how um, it kind of ties into what we I've uh, been talking about it. Let me see if I here. Um, I have this short section in the dissertation where I look at authoritative all male uh, figures from the Vajrayana tradition, sort of speaking back to Karma Mudra practice, and it's those who have emphasized it as a necessity 
um, or emphasized it in certain ways that that these masters feel is problematic. So which, should I read this? Yeah. He says, so this is from a, a little uh, sort of fun little text he wrote where he's, he's, he starts by making fun of all the major schools of Tibetan Buddhism, sort of stereotyping and satirizing them and their tendencies. And then he finishes by, by applauding their, their stereotypical uh, capacities and tendencies and then saying, like, let's all get along. Um, you know, all schools are great and all schools are equal. Um, so this is his sort of um, lampooning of Nyingma practitioners. And, you know, Ngakpa has been most uh, um, prevalent in the Nyingma school which sort of develops institutionalized monasticism at a slightly later moment than some of the other schools, or at least emphasizes it. So he says, Nyingma Lamas, while they accept that there is a path of clear light, great perfection of Dzogchen, so Ati Yoga, the highest vehicle of, of the nine vehicles of, of the Nyingma, in which one may attain the level of Vajradhara Buddha, full enlightenment, without relying on things, like an external karma mudra or tantric sex partner. So they acknowledge that, he says. They have these alternative methods for Buddhahood that don't require the use of the physical sexual partner. He says, nonetheless, these lamas, they say that lamas should make use of women to increase their lifespans, to improve their eyesight, be free of sickness, and to reveal beneficial treasure teachings for the sake of sentient beings. So they say all these things that Lama should use uh, such real partners. And then he says, yet they don't say that those Lamas need to teach and practice for the sake of the teachings themselves. Because these are all quite sort of instru instrumentalizations of sexual yoga, right? Like, I'll oh, improve my eyesight. You know, these are sort of, it, it, um, he says, so they don't say they need to teach and practice for the sake of the teachings themselves. It seems really funny, really amazing, really incredible to me that partnered tantric sexual yoga could fulfill the function of benefiting the teachings and sentient beings, of furthering both instruction and practice of the teachings, and of improving one's eyesight all at the same time. How wonderful. So, you know, in a gentle way, he's saying, I'm not sure I believe all you non-celibate lamas, when you're saying it's so necessary for you to uh, do these practices, how, you know, it seems a little self-serving to me. But at the same time, it's important to understand that this is someone from inside the tradition. This is someone who himself wrote texts on how to do sexual yoga practices for his students. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I think that we, for me, it's just we have, we have to recognize that criticism is is necessary and real and complex and is coming from all kinds of different places and it's not some new interloper. Um, you know, I'm sympathetic to this complaint that uh, um, we sh we should be cautious about applying different frameworks, you know, alien foreign frameworks to understanding practices that take place in, in a, whole, a wholly different cultural and historical context. But we are all people who live in, in the world. We, Tibetans don't live in a Tibetan medieval feudal society or a Tibetan medieval feudal mindset. Um, and, and, and then 
by virtue of that are somehow not participants in the modern world, capable of holding more than one um, way of thinking and being in their minds simultaneously. You know, I think we can get really essentializing in how we trace out the kind of the 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 boundaries in these kinds of discussions and debates. I, I yeah, I try to just to 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 look at it more as an anthropologist might. I mean, of course, I have my own feelings about what might constitute abuse, but um, I'm interested in this kind of critical tradition because we we see it as I mentioned in the dissertation. We see. Um, we see even um, Saraha, you know, pretty old uh, Mahasiddha commentator, making fun of people who overemphasize uh, sexual yoga practice. So, you know, I mean, I think the, the, the cultural politics involved in this are very complicated. Mm, complicated indeed. I'm curious as we round off this episode. You mentioned, of course, that certainly the texts are very often written from a heteronormative perspective and that the idea of a Nagpa is often a gendered uh, role, if you like, uh, with a certain orientation, sexual orientation implied, it seems. How is non-heteronormative expressions of sexuality or how does that appear, I suppose, both traditionally but also societally? You're you're there, of course, uh, on the ground with your fieldwork. And what did you observe along those lines? Um, so I myself am queer, and uh, it was interesting doing a lot of this research because, as I mentioned, so many of the texts and even the encounters that I was having were very heteronormative. Um, I mean, I won't get into the whole uh, dynamic of what it's like being a, someone who's coded as queer in their everyday life in, say, South Africa or America. They've sort of gotten used to, over the years, people people gendering you and sort of identifying your sexual orientation before you even open your mouth and then to move somewhere else in the world where the rules are slightly different and only some people read you the same way. And, and that's really, it's a great lesson in, in the nature of ident- the constructed nature of identity, the, the contingent nature of identity. That was an interesting experience for me um, just in general doing field work that I would have had whether or not I was doing a lot of research into sexual practices of various kinds. Um, yes, the texts are, Tibetan sexual yoga texts are really quite heteronormative and heterosexual uh, in flavor, um, seemingly even more so than, than some Indian texts, because in, in some of the Shaiva texts, you see at least this kind of stock acknowledgement of third gender, you know, even in the in the Kama in the in the Indian Kama Shastra texts, which are not tantric, but um, actually have a whole um, chapter in the dissertation about how Kama Shastra, Kama Sutra, actually becomes tantric in Tibet, uh, more tantric because it becomes incorporated into uh, sort of the curriculum of sexual yoga. That's a whole other issue. But in Tibetan texts, they actually you see even less direct discussion of, of queerness. Uh, of various kinds than you do in some of the Indian material. Um, now, one of the unique things about th- this book, the Karma Mudra book, is that, um, you know, I'm openly queer and, and Nida has known that about me since we've met. And so it was really nice to have a discussion with a straight Lama who, with very little exposure to queer lifestyles, 
uh, but several queer students, and to, you know, ask him candid questions, and for him to ask me candid questions, too. Um, it was, it was a, has been a very nice exchange. Um, so there is so much more we could have said. We had a section in the book where we talk about this. And, you know, I, I've experienced this and seen people, queer practitioners or would-be practitioners, experience this where, you know, whether it be New Age Tantra, Neo Tantra, or Vajrayana, they're seeing very heteronormative imagery. You know, there's a Yap and there's a Yum. There's a male Buddha and a female Buddha. And when it comes to actual sexual yoga practices, um, you know, it's kind of assumed that there's a female-bodied practitioner and a male-bodied practitioner. And the male-bodied practitioner is, is, is self-generating, is uh, arising as a male Buddha, and the, the yogini is arising as a female one. And uh, these practices typically involve a preliminary step where the, the genitals are consecrated. Um, so uh, the the penis is is sort of arises or is visual actualized visualized as a vajra um, and with mantric uh, uh, syllables on it the um, uh, vagina vulva as a lotus. Um, this is part of the sacralization, the sort of maintaining of the idea that this is not ordinary sex, right? Um, so in my experience. I, I had a lot of experience in studying and interacting with people before getting involved in tantric Buddhism in sort of sex, Western sex magic and neo-tantra and that, that sort of thing. My experience in those communities is that what ends up happening is that sort of what I would consider entirely historically specific, like kind of parochial, provincial, historically, culturally provincial ideas about gender, uh, about gender roles. In those communities, they frequently get kind of deified. Um, so in New Age tantric context, it's not uncommon to hear that you know, the feminine, the sacred feminine is like this, or, or woman's energy is like this, or there's masculine energy and female energy. And, and there's the kind of essentializing and almost cosmologizing of what I consider to be cultural stuff, <laughs> um, but that it almost become described as if they're innate. You know, like Phil Hine, uh, a friend of mine, uh, who's sort of got one foot in Western occultism and, and, and Tantra, he's written some great stuff about how in neo-tantric and Western occult communities since the sort of 50s to the present, it's People are a bit more wise to it now, and it's gotten a little better. People are a bit more conscious and aware. But it, I mean, there used to be Wiccan groups who also practice a eros gamos, right? A sacred rite with a high priest and the high priestess call down the god and the goddess, and then they engage in public sex, and then uh, there's a sacrament and so on. And, you know, there would, used to be groups that would deny entry to trance and queer people. It seems unthinkable now because being a witch is associated with queerness, it seems, these days. But it used to be that people would say, oh, you, your channels are broken. Or, or you know, they, they pathologized um, uh, deviant sexuality in, in the language of, these, of, of, of spirituality and spiritual traditions and the subtle body. Oh, your chakras are upside down. You have too much yin energy and that's why you're a bottom. And, so, you know, all these kinds of things. And 
it's interesting because when you really look, and my colleague uh, Christopher Wallace has, has discussed this too in the Shaiva context, when you look at Indo-Tibetan sexual yoga texts, you don't see anything like this. You don't see an explicit uh, philosophy that cosmologizes conventional ideas of gender. The whole point is that these are symbolic conventions which are arbitrary and get dissolved through the practice. The whole point is that you realize that there is nothing intrinsically feminine or masculine. You know, these are dualistic conceptions that, you know, like uh, a lot of the sexual yoga texts, the Tibetan sexual yoga texts say that one of the requirements of a practitioner is that they must have no shame about any sexual acts that they may engage in in the context of sexual meditation. Because any shame that you might feel about this act being dirty or weird or, or you saying this word or feeling this way or wanting to touch or be touched that way, that's, that's human contrivance. Um, that's, that's something you, that's a kind of con dualistic conceptuality that the practice is actually dissolving. Um, so it's always been strange to me that then you see kind of new age versions of sacred sexuality, which seem like they're, they're not only fixated on those dualistic conceptions, they've actually kind of elevated them to the level of theology. Um, so even though there are these conventions in the sexual yoga text, you know, the male imagines himself as, as the male Buddha and the yab and then the human and the penis is the Dorje and it goes inside the, the, the lotus. We mustn't get confused about what these things are. So that's why it was really nice to talk to Nida about this and he just very explicitly explained, look, sexual yoga practice in Tibetan context is about using whatever means work to uh, uh, experience sensory desire, the inflaming of the senses arousal, sexual bliss. It becomes the, the material for your meditation. Just like with chit, your feelings of, of selflessness and fear and generosity are focused. Just like with dream yoga, your dualistic conceptions of dreaming become the basis for the practice, which then allows you to realize non-dual awareness, right? Um, the subject-object experiences and dreams, you, you use them you don't dismiss or suppress them or inflate them. You use them. So in sexual yoga, you're doing that too. And as Nita points out, outside of sexual yoga context, it's very normal, required, for male-bodied, conventionally karmically male-bodied lamas to visualize themselves as, as Vajra Yogini, Vajra Varahi, as the idam, and vice versa, female-bodied practitioners to imagine themselves as, as an opposite gender Buddha. But the reality is, if you understand deity yoga, meditational deities don't have gender in the way that human beings have gender. They have conventional symbolic appearances, um, which we use to dissolve any attachment to, um, to conventional uh, dualism. So Nida explains very uh, clearly that if you are transgender or... or, or, or uh, gay, lesbian, whatever your sexual orientation might be, the point of the practice is you're using sexual stimulation and you're bringing it onto the path 
So it would be silly for um, uh, someone who's not attracted to the form, the sort of conventional form of a woman, to try to stimulate themselves by imagining, uh, 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 you know, uh, an imagined sexual partner in the shape of a woman, just because that's what the text says. Um, so Nida makes this allowance, which I haven't seen many other lamas sort of be so explicit about, where he says, you, you use what works to create the conditions uh, and the space which you're trying to cultivate as part of this meditative practice. Um, the, the point of uh, sexual yoga practice is to experience at the, in the deepest, most stable way, the utter inseparability of bliss and emptiness. Is to, is to realize that the, you're, you're using the arisings of bliss as a basis for meditation to realize their, their, um, their emptiness, um, just as you might realize the emptiness of sounds or shapes or any sensory arisings as well. Appear form and emptiness, emptiness and form. This is sexual yoga is, you know, it's, we're at the Heart Sutra here. It's the essence of, of, of the Buddha Dharma's teachings. And so you're, you're beginning with something that that's, starts with a lot of fixation and projection you're, you're sort of hacking um, the, the same sort of attachments and dualistic investments that I think, no offense to anybody, some neo-tantric teachers, un, they're not really trying to undermine that. They're almost sort of elevating that. Um, so there's really no reason that anyone who isn't able to ex experience sensory arisings can't do some level of these practices. Now, we do hear, especially in those life enhancement practices and other things, we do see in the tradition certain extremely advanced practices where um, um, yogis and yoginis are trained to absorb one another's mingled sexual fluids. And the tradition talks about um, consuming sexual fluids in a more literal fashion. And then one wonders how this would be whether this could be um, sort of moved out of a heteronormative context. Um, Nida's feeling is sort of like, well, those practices developed in that heteronormative way, and so they can't sort of just be tweaked. Uh, they're specific to that. Um, but as he also points out, there's no, you know, sexual yoga incorporates much more than just that, right? Much more than just engagements with the sort of physical fact of, of sexual secretions of men or women. Um, and everybody's subtle body is perfect and complete in and of itself. It might be more difficult, some of the sexual yoga texts, this is where it gets really interesting. We could talk more in terms of the techniques because there's a sort of recognition in the sexual yoga traditions that certain factors need to be there. So like if you have uh, libido problems, um, or if there's damage to channels after childbirth, or if it's difficult for you to experience uh, certain forms of stimulation or sensory pleasure because of psychological trauma, or, um, then, then you may not be a good candidate for these practices. Those methods, uh, that, that type of kind of embodied engagement that, that is used as a form of meditation might not work best for you or you might have to do additional work to kind of, and then maybe you do some other practice, right? You do some other discipline. 
So it really all depends on the individual. But I don't believe there's anything essentialized in in the body of any practitioner that prevents them from experiencing bliss emptiness because that's the nature of their mind, right? It's the nature of their awareness. So if we're talking in this really essentializing kind of uh, uh, reifying way, like, oh, you can't do this practice because you're a, you're a, you know, you're a this or that. It's like the whole point is that the practice is taking you away from you're a this, you're a that thinking. So it's sort of a bit of a weird, weird irony in a way. But anyway, I hope that that, that answers the question. That's uh, so fascinating, Ben. So, Dr. Ben Joffe, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.